Good morning. My name is Grace Federn, and I attend Redeemer Odessa. Today we'll be reading Galatians uh, 3, 26 through 4, 7. For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you were baptized into Christ and have put on Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither there is no male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, there is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of the time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then heir through God. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our Lord stands forever. Thank you, Grace. Hey, good morning. It's good to be with you. My name is Tanner House. I'm the lead pastor here at Redeemer Odessa. Uh, If you're a guest, thank you for spending your Sunday morning with us. Under your chair, there's a Connect card. Um, If you would take a minute, fill that out, get it back to us, we would love an opportunity to connect with you, to serve you, to see how we can get you plugged into the life of the body. Uh, We're going to be in Galatians 3 and 4 today. If you need a Bible, you can raise your hand. Uh, Adam will bring you on. There's some out on the resource table. Um, If you're on your phone or your tablet or whatever, we use the ESV. And we also have an app, um, Redeemer Odessa, and there's a Bible on that app and some sermon notes for this morning. And all of those notes will be on the screen if you are if you are taking notes. So again, it's good to be with you. I have a lot to say this morning. This is one of my all-time favorite passages in all of Scripture, and I feel like I say that a lot. However, this time I mean it more than the others because um, I I love this this passage. This set of verses is what the Lord used to push me to want to preach through Galatians together as a church. This is the climax of the book of Galatians. The entirety of Galatians hangs on this passage. And really, this passage brings us to the height of our Christian privilege. Meaning this, we've spent a lot of time talking about our justification. Our justification, the way we are made right by Jesus and forgiven of our sins by God the Father is in fact a beautiful mercy to us. But that's not where the love of God for his people ends. If you are a true believer in Jesus, you have been divinely adopted. And therefore, you are a child of God. And I think it's really easy uh, just to stand up here and say, that I'm a child of God. It's really easy for us to say, yeah, I believe in God. Like so many people out here in West Texas would say that. Yeah, I believe in God. But today, as we are walking through this text, I really want you to consider 
the implications for what believing in Christ for our salvation actually means. And I want you to really consider whether or not you believe in Christ Jesus for the salvation. And if you do, if you would say you do, do you find it hard to rest in your identity as a beloved child of God? So we're going to pray, and we're going to jump in, and we're going to pray with eager expectation that the Lord God is going to meet us here and do a work in our hearts this morning. So would you go before the Lord with me? Lord Jesus, we need you. Lord, and I know I say that every week, but I mean it, Lord. We need you. Apart from you, we cannot do it. Lord, I ask just by your great grace and your great mercy to us that you would show us our great need for you. And Lord, for struggling sinners and saints out in this crowd this morning, you would lead us to repentance, Lord, that you would lead us to the cross, Lord Jesus, that you would lead us to rest in our identities as chosen and beloved before you. Lord, remind us of how dearly bought we are and remind us of what being an adopted son or daughter means. Church, if you're willing, I'd ask that you'd pray for yourself, that the Lord would bring encouragement where encouragement is needed and conviction where conviction is needed. Lord, we love you. Help us to love you more. Lord, we trust you. Help us to trust you more. It's by the great mercy of the cross that we pray, Lord Jesus. Amen. All right, Galatians 3, beginning in verse 26. It says, For in Christ you are all sons of God through faith. So Paul, the Apostle Paul, the writer of the book of Galatians, has been building a systematic argument up to this point to get to his mic drop statement here. Paul is writing this book to uh, combat false teachers and false teachings. And these teachings are that you have to do certain things in order to be saved by God. Namely, for the time that Paul was writing, it was keeping the Old Testament law and being circumcised. To sum it up, these false teachers taught that in order to be a follower of Jesus, you first had to become a follower of Judaism. And Paul responds throughout this book with a series of rebuttals that can be condensed into this one sentence. We're saved by grace alone, which is the unmerited favor of God through Christ. We're saved by grace alone, by faith alone, in Christ Jesus alone. Faith in Christ's work on the cross to purchase our forgiveness by God from sin. That is how we are saved. We're not working to earn God's favor because of our sin nature. We're not ever going to be able to do enough through obedience and through moralism to make ourselves clean and to make ourselves holy and to make ourselves pure and to make ourselves acceptable. We just can't do it. We need a Savior. And we get one through Jesus. It's not our performance. 
It's Christ's performance for us that God has accepted for our salvation. So Paul highlights in chapter 2 and in chapter 3 the doctrine of justification. We have defined justification as this. God declares sinners righteous solely through faith in Jesus Christ. Martin Luther says, this is the doctrine upon which the church stands. Justification is a beautiful, beautiful truth for us. Because it's how we are forgiven from our sin that rightly deserves punishment. We're forgiven by God as if we have never, ever sinned. We have been declared not guilty. David Platt says, by grace, through faith in Christ, we are right before God the judge. He is our righteousness. Christ has made us right through himself. And so Paul says, in Christ, you are all sons of God. This verse is a summary statement for the entire book up to this point. The last two weeks we've talked about Abraham. We've talked about God's covenant with Abraham where God promised Abraham that he would have a bunch of descendants, as many descendants, as numerous as the stars in the sky. And through one of his descendants, Jesus, the whole earth would be blessed. The Jews thought this was a primary, uh, primarily a political blessing, but here we see it's much more than that. Paul shows us the gospel is also for the Gentiles. He says, you are all sons of God. All is not meaning every single person to ever walk the face of the earth. That's not, we're not universalist. But Paul says, all those whose faith is in Christ have received salvation. In Christ, Paul says, you have a family. And since we have been included in the family of God as sons through faith, we get the benefit of belonging to the family of God. Paul is very strategic in tacking on the through faith at the end of this verse. Because the only way to be a member of God's family is by faith. By personally trusting in Jesus Christ for the salvation of your life. That is purchased through the death of Jesus on the cross, confirmed by the resurrection of Christ and sealed with the Holy Spirit in our lives. We need the faith that justifies. We need the faith that declares us not guilty in order to receive these benefits that Paul speaks of um, following verse 26. Let's pick it up in verse 30, 27. 27 comes after 26. <laughs> Let's pick it up in verse 27. For as many of you... We're as, hang on, run it back. All right, verse 27. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. I'm going to stop right there. There's some cool imagery here taking place in verse 27 that if we're not careful, uh, 21st century Western culture, we can fly right past it. So Paul up to this point has talked about how the law in the Old Testament serves as a guardian to, like a guardian to a child. Um, but there comes a point where children don't need their parents anymore, where children don't need a guardian anymore, and it's when they become an adult. The need for the law to function as a guardian went away when Christ rose from the grave. Also in this culture, when a boy would become a man, 
He would literally change out of boyhood clothes and put on man clothes. And while I was trying to think about a good example for this, I saw a bearded man walk by wearing a onesie. So I actually have nothing good to offer you there. But just know, when a boy became a man, they would change their clothes. It's true. I saw it. So Paul brings this illustration into view with this discussion on baptism. Baptism is not what saves us. Just like circumcision isn't what made the uh, Gentiles here right with God, or the Jews right with God. However, baptism and circumcision are outward signs of inward realities. So circumcision for the Jews in the Old Testament is a sign saying, we are God's people. Baptism for the New Testament church is a public declaration that says, I am identifying with, I am linked with Christ through his death and through his resurrection, and I will live for him. It's a sign that signifies grace comes through faith. And we're declaring for the church and the world to witness this when we are baptized. Paul is saying, when you were baptized, you changed out of your old garments, the garments of sin, the garments of worldliness, and you've put on Christ as your new garment. You are now united with Christ. Philip Ryken summarizes this by saying, Christ is in the Christian, and the Christian is in Christ. We are connected to everything Christ ever did for our salvation. We participate in his obedient life. We participate in his suffering, his death, and his glorious resurrection. These are all symbolized in baptism. Christ has been crucified and Christ has been raised. And we declare through baptism that we believe this and we're identifying with Christ's death as we die to our sin and when we are raised out of the water to walk in newness of life. And what's more is that through faith in Christ and through identification with Christ in baptism, we are joining a family that transcends everything that would divide us. Let's look at verse 28. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Faith in Christ transcends and transforms our lives and our worldviews. The things that would divide us don't have to anymore because we've been called into a family. Paul highlights three things, and I don't think this list here was meant to be exhaustive, but there are three things that he identifies uh, that were significant for them then, and they're also significant for us now. Not much has changed 2,000 years from, removed from this text. In this church, there was a racial divide that we've talked about. There was a class divide. There was a gender divide. And if we're honest, it's still real present today. In Paul's day, race was a common pre- uh, prejudice. In Judaism, there were two races, Jews and everybody else. If you weren't a Jew... Or if you weren't a despised cousin, a Samaritan, then you were a Gentile. And it didn't matter where you came from. It didn't matter um, how much money you had. If you were not a Jew, you were less than in the eyes of Jews. 
Then we have these social and gender divides that were present. Sin has divided us along the lines of things that God created and called very good. God transcends race. God transcends gender. These things are in place to celebrate a creative God. These things are in place to celebrate the transcendent nature of the gospel of Jesus that is both for Jews and Gentiles. And yet, we divide over these things. But what Scripture teaches us is that these divisions can be overcome in Christ and in Christ alone. Paul literally says in this verse when he says you are all one in Christ, what he's literally saying is you are all one person in Christ. Union with Christ is our basis for union with one another. When you really understand the depths of your sin, when you really understand just how sinful you are, there are no differences among us. We all stand condemned apart from the grace of God. We all need Jesus' sacrifice of himself and his righteousness given to us through the forgiveness of sin. Through the resurrection, Christ has destroyed man-made barriers that will divide us. All of God's children, regardless of race, regardless of class, regardless of gender, are one in Christ by faith in Christ. And here we get to the biggest benefit of our Christian walk. And this is where I want to spend the remainder of our time together. Let's pick it up in verse 29. It says, if, And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. Paul calls us heirs, heirs of promise. An heir is somebody who inherits property and funds uh, after the beneficiary has died. If you are in Christ, Paul says the promise that God made to Abraham extends to you. But what is that promise? Let's look at chapter 4, verse 1. Paul says, I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything, but he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, we were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. This is again referring to that custom when a boy would become a man. When he was a child, even though he was the heir, he was still very much treated like a servant or a slave. He is under the authority of those in charge of him until his father has appointed him to take over. Paul says in the same way, we're enslaved like this child in this illustration. The law serves as our manager Until, let's look at verse 4. Here comes some incredibly good news for us. Verse 4. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Okay, a little disclaimer here. I spent a lot of time with David Platt's commentary on these two verses. 
So I'm going to use a lot of what he says here uh, because it was just so good and so helpful in understanding our adoption as believers. So I'm going to try to quote him when I'm using him, uh, using his thoughts or his words. And if I fail to do so once or twice, just know when it sounds smarter than normal, it's probably plat. So um, hang with me. So let's look at these verses together. God, through Christ, has adopted us. We're going to use our understanding of contemporary adoption to reinforce what is happening here. And we're going to take these two verses, phrase by phrase, to build out what is taking place. Paul says, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son. Platt says adoption requires someone who comes at the right time. So my wife and I have adopted four kids. Several of you have adopted one or more. Uh, And we can all probably attest that the process to adopt a child is oftentimes a grueling process. I don't mean that it's not worth it, but I do mean it can be very hard. For me, it was hard like emotionally. It was hard spiritually at times. Nothing really felt secure. And I wish I could stand up here as your pastor and tell you that I was always steady and faithful. I wasn't, um, but God was, and God continues to be. Anyways, the point is it's really hard. If you go the international route, for example, the waiting can be brutal. Paperwork takes time. Government is slow. Red tape and international governments are even slower, and then money's involved, and it just takes so much time. But in the sovereignty of God, when the time is right, you get that phone call that changes your life. uh, The same way, God sent Jesus at the right time. God isn't sitting up there waiting for things to fall apart. God isn't sitting up there thinking to himself and wringing his hands together like, oh, is today the day? No. God has planned for this moment for Christ to be born. It was the exact right time as God was designing history to coincide with his eternal decree. And just like God had ordained the right exact moment for Christ to be born, the same is true also about Christ's return. God sent his son and will send him again in accordance with God's good and perfect plan. So adoption requires someone who comes at the right time. Platt also says that adoption requires someone who possesses the right qualifications. So as I was thinking back on on our process to adopt, uh, first we're trying to adopt from Ethiopia and then doing foster care. We had to go and get fingerprinted. We had to have criminal background checks done because they thought Kendra was sketchy. Just kidding. Um, Everyone does that, not just Kendra. Um, We had to do all these home studies just to make sure we were even qualified to adopt. And Platt says, according to adoption in God's family, it requires the right qualifications. For instance, who can pay the price for sinners to be saved? That question points to only one possible person, Jesus. And here are his qualifications. Jesus is fully God. 
God the Father did not create Jesus. God the Father sent God the Son, the preexistent, fully divine, infinite Son of God, who alone through himself could bear the infinite wrath of God against sin. And Jesus could do so being fully God, but he could do so because he is also fully human. Paul says he was born of woman. He did not merely appear to be human, no. He was fully human with a normal birth in a dingy manger and swaddled in burial clothes. And as Jesus is fully God and fully man, we see Jesus is fully righteous. Not only was he born of woman, but he was also born under the law. Platt says Jesus was not born simply a man, He was born specifically a Jewish man who grew up in a Jewish home and attended the Jewish synagogue, which means this. He perfectly fulfilled all the demands of the Jewish law of God. If Jesus had not been righteous, he would not have been able to redeem an unrighteous people to himself. So Jesus came at the right time. Jesus had the right qualifications Now, according to Platt, adoption requires one more thing. Adoption requires someone who has the right resolve. So my wife and I intentionally set out to adopt. We didn't accidentally adopt. We did it on purpose. It was our goal. Jesus came with a purpose to redeem those under the law to adopt them as sons. He was determined to redeem us. Platt says a parent takes the initiative to seek out and adopt a child. So it was God's pleasure and will before the creation of the world to set his affections upon us. Here's the difference between our contemporary adoptions and what God has accomplished through Christ. Adoption gets glamorized a lot, I think. I mean, it was a super easy decision for for us to adopt. I mean, look how beautiful my kids are. But consider, with me real quick, consider the verses of Scripture that talk about our position prior to Christ adopting us. Ephesians 2 calls you a vessel of wrath. We're vessels of wrath. We do not want God. We don't want holiness. We only want our sin. When left to ourselves, we're enemies of God. Selfish, prideful, ugly, broken vessels of wrath. But God did not see fit to leave us this way. So one of the most frustrating parts for me during the foster care process, uh, at least it was for me, maybe some of you other foster families will be able to identify with this. People would come up to me and say, I could never do that. I could never foster. I mean, and then they'd have a bunch of reasons why. The, some of the more frustrating ones were, were like, what if the kid that you get sets your house on fire? Or man, I hear about how those kids are so violent. Or, wow, I heard this one story about this foster kid that was acting out sexually in the home where the couple's real kids were. 
or the biological families are crazy. Grace to those people, but it was super frustrating. And then I was reading Russell Moore's book, Adopted for Life. Um, he paints this story of this 12-year-old boy whose social worker is telling this potential family of all of the things wrong with this kid, all of the things this kid has ever done. And he looks at this family, and it's all very bad that the social worker is listing out, and he looks at this family and she says, do you really want this child? And then Moore identifies this problematic 12-year-old. He's you. And he's me. This is what the gospel is telling us. There is nothing good in us apart from Christ. There was nothing in us to draw Christ to us other than the fact that God was determined to redeem and rescue us. We were so sinful, and yet Jesus went to the cross. Our sin meant that God was against us, and yet Jesus died in order to rescue us. And because of this great rescue of Christ on the cross to forgive us of our sin, and by his resurrection, our treasonous rebellion against God means we have been adopted into a family. My kids through adoption now belong to me. Everything that I have belongs to them. They will inherit from my wife and I. Jokes on them, it won't be much, but they will will inherit from me because they're mine. They're mine. Just as much as any biological child would be, they are mine. There is no distinction between biological children and adopted children. We wanted them. We chose them. They didn't choose us. And in a much grander and glorious way, Christ did the same thing. Christ has made a way for us to be adopted in God. We are now heirs. Co-heirs with Jesus. Co-inheritors with Christ. The promise is sonship. The promise is that we are God's children. The promise is that we inherit an eternity with God through faith in Christ. The inheritance is that we get God himself. Somebody holler back. J.I. Packer says that while justification, our forgiveness, is excellent and praiseworthy because we have been pardoned, that's good news, right? Adoption, on the other hand, is the highest privilege that the gospel affords us. And here's why. Look at verse 6. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Because of our adoption, God has sent the spirit of himself the Spirit of God, into our hearts. God now lives inside of you, Christian. And that is wonderfully good news. And since God lives in you, you are no longer in bondage to your sin. Your sin no longer holds you back. Your sin no longer weighs you down because God the judge has declared you not guilty. 
But then we're in this courtroom together. God the judge has declared you not guilty. But then God the judge steps down from his judge's bench and removes your shackles and then places them on his son. And his son, Jesus, bears your punishment on himself. And then the judge adopts you as his own, making you an heir. You will now inherit with Christ. Everything that Christ is going to inherit will now be ours too. Not that we're co-equal with Jesus, but since we're in Christ and because God is kind to us, we have the benefits and the privilege of sonship. What that means is this. When the Spirit in our hearts cries, Abba, Father, there is intimacy Growing up in church, my youth pastor used to tell us that Abba meant daddy. And then some girls in my youth group started praying like, daddy God, yeah. You were in that youth group too. You scared me a little bit. It doesn't mean exactly that. That's not entirely what it means. And it actually cheapens this word Abba a little bit. If you're one of those people, I'm sorry that uh, if I've hurt your feelings, that's not my intention. But let me tell you why this is important to get a better understanding of Abba. So when we adopted our kids, we gave them new names. They now have new stories, so therefore they got new names. And in a much grander and glorious way, when we come to Christ, it changes who we are. It changes our eternities, yes, but it also changes our two days. God lives inside of us. If you are sons and daughters, God lives inside of you. We who were once held captive by sin now have been set free to live for God in the freedom of our forgiveness. This term, Abba, Father, means there is intimacy with God. The God who is unchanging from age to age. The same God that we see in the book of Exodus. The Israelites approaching the mountain and the mountain quaking and they're freaking out and they're so afraid and they're trembling with fear at the base of this mountain. This is the same God. And yet, because of the blood of Jesus and the promise of the indwelling Holy Spirit, we don't have to approach him in fear. Because of our adoption, we've been given the Spirit of God. We can approach him with humble confidence because he is our Father. Look, I know some of this familial language is really hard for a lot of you. Maybe you don't have a present dad, like physically present or emotionally present. Or maybe you have an awesome dad. But imagine with me, if you're willing for a second, what it would be like to have a perfect dad. All of our earthly dads don't even get close to this standard of perfection. This dad is never short with you. This dad is never annoyed with you. This dad is never cruel to you. This dad is always there. This dad has not abandoned you. This dad is with you. This dad delights in you. And not because you're good. 
but because he loves you. This is the father that we have. If we are believers in Christ and have received his adoption, this is the father that you have. We tend to think that struggle and suffering means that God is against us. Maybe we would never say that out loud, but sometimes we feel that. But I want to submit to you that these moments, these moments of struggle and suffering are meant to draw you in nearer and nearer to the heart of your father who loves you and wants you and delights in you. When you hear the news you don't want to hear, when you get the diagnosis that you don't want, when your kids are wayward, or when you're fearful, or when your relationships fail you, when the cares of the world are pressing you down, the Spirit of God intercedes for you, crying, Abba, Father. It's the language of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane on the night he was arrested. Father, my Father, my perfect, loving, and gracious Father, Abba. And yet, I don't think we realize this. And I'm preaching to myself more than any one of you in this moment. I don't think we realize the power and the privilege that we have in getting to approach God in such an intimate way. At one time, this privilege was only reserved for priests once a year after they slaughtered their sacrifices. But now, church, we've been brought near because of the blood of Christ. When we pray, we are engaging in intimacy with God who has bought us through himself. And sadly, sometimes we just don't. When we pray, we are allowing the Lord to conform us more to his image and incline our hearts to him. When we pray, we get to submit our requests to the Lord in humble submission because he is really the only one that can help us. When we pray, we are exhibiting our adoption. It is a privilege reserved for sons and daughters. Paul writes Galatians to combat false teachings of these people, the Judaizers. They have this religion thing down but they've missed the whole point of the gospel, and that is God became a man to save sinners because he wants a relationship with his people for his glory. And sadly, many of us who profess to be Christians have this religion thing down and miss the heart of God in the process. You can show up to church, you can serve, you can give, and you can still have no intimacy with God through the Holy Spirit by the cross of Christ. When we don't pray, we are communicating that we don't need God. I'm almost done. I told you all I had a lot to say. Do you realize what a privilege it is to be able to approach God like this? Do you realize how dearly bought you are? If you're in Christ, you've been dearly bought. The cross of Christ has made you a child of God. Listen, God wants you to come to him, not because there is anything worthy in us to be able to approach God. But if you're in Christ, God has set his seal of adoption on you, and now you have a father who loves you. Why would you continue to neglect this intimacy with your father? 
Let me give you a couple reasons and then, and then we'll be done. I think we don't approach God because we have such a low view of ourselves, some of you. And I'm not talking about like the Christian hatred of sin sort of way, but in the worst kind of way. I'm confident that especially in times of struggle and in times when we sin and those times that lead us to feeling guilty and ashamed and in times when we feel alone and in times of feeling like none of this even really matters. I'm confident that if we really believed that we were children of God, then we would be a lot kinder to ourselves in those moments. When we understand what our sonship really means, we'd let ourselves off the hook for the things that God has already forgiven us for. If we really understood our sonship, we would be more gracious to ourselves because Christ went to the cross and his blood speaks a better word over you. I'm reading this book right now by Puritan Richard Sibbs. It's called The Bruise Read. And I was reading a section on Thursday night on prayer and how we beat ourselves up so much when we sin. And I think it's good to be convicted of sin and to hate our sin. But there's no condemnation for those in Christ. When we're doing that, when we're feeling guilty and ashamed, sometimes that leads us to avoid God. Sib says that God has endeared himself to his children. Then he said something that wrecked me. Let us not be so cruel to ourselves when God is thus gracious. Christian, lean into grace. You've been forgiven. I promise you, you are much worse than you probably even realize. But in Christ, you're more loved and wanted than you could ever think possible. Christ doesn't require us to clean ourselves up before we come to him. There is nothing we can do to earn his love, nothing we can do to earn his salvation. It has already been done for us. Christ asks for an acknowledgement by faith that we are in sin and we need his forgiveness. We have to admit that we need him, and that's all. Another reason why professing Christians may not approach God is that we don't have a right view of Christ. A lot of us approach Christ like some cosmic genie or impersonal creature out there somewhere who, when we need something, we can ask. But it's got to be really big before we ask. And then we don't consider him again until we need something else. And then when we don't get what we want, we get upset. And the temptation is to think or act or believe that God is against us. And if the life and ministry of Jesus teaches us anything, it's that this line of thinking just is not true. Jesus Christ, the creator of heaven and earth, who was there with the Father and Spirit at creation, is not distant from you. He is personal. So personal, in fact, that he was willing to step out of perfection and endure your sin and endure your shame on your cross. And more than that, he rose from the grave and has given us the gift of the promised Holy Spirit. So now, if you are a believer in Jesus, God is not only present but he lives in you. Because of the blood of Christ, Jesus is interceding for you. The Spirit advocates for you. Christ, for his glory and the glory of the Father, wants to redeem your sinful life. We have been adopted. 
man, if this is your view of, of God functionally or otherwise, I just ask you to repent of this. Christ is worth more than your religious devotion. He has called us in the faith and into fellowship with him and his bride, the church. Christ is inviting us into a better life. Christ is inviting you out of your unbelief and into faith and independency on him to come and see that Jesus is better in God, through Christ, by the Spirit, we have everything we need. Christ is calling you out of your unbelief this morning. He wants to hear your requests, yes, but more importantly, he wants you. He wants all of you. He wants your fears. He wants your anxieties. He wants your insecurities. And in spite of your sin, he wants you and wants to show you how to live a life devoted for him. If you're in Christ, God is pleased with you. He does not simply tolerate you. He delights in you. He has given you grace, which is the unmerited favor of God, not because you deserve it, but because he delights in doing so and it brings him glory. Christian, you're no longer a slave, but a son, a child of God most high. Delight in your father who has made a way for you to be set free. If you're not yet a believer, this is available for you too. Christ has made a way for you to have this wondrous love. You have to believe that he is greater than your sin and receive his forgiveness by faith. You don't have to have it all figured out. Christ wants you in spite of you. So let's all repent and believe this morning, all of us. Let's pray.